0: I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Zainab Salbi, the founder of Women for Women International, an organization that assists female survivors of war in countries including Rwanda, Kosovo, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Women for Women has provided over $100 million in direct aid and microfinance loans, and the organization also helps women start their own small businesses. Zainab grew up in Iraq, where her family had ties to Saddam Hussein. Her father was his personal pilot. She is the author of Between Two Worlds, a memoir that describes her life growing up under Saddam's Ba'athist regime, and The Other Side of War, Women's Stories of Survival and Hope. Welcome. Thank you. When you were growing up in Iraq, what did you dream to be?
1: Oh, well, like as any child and teenager, I went through a whole series of dreams from wanting to be a pilot to wanting to be an architect. Um, But really, at the age of 15, I knew that I wanted to work with women and help women. I remember that moment very, very clearly. It was after my mom made me read so many books about women's issues and told me so many stories of what goes on with women. Um, And I remember she was driving one afternoon in Iraq, one evening, actually, in Iraq, and I told her, when I grow up, I'm going to help women. I'm going to dedicate my life to helping women. And I remember her turning towards me, looking at me, and she says, and you can do it. Mm. And I never forgot that moment. And um, that has been my journey ever since. I, I went on a detour here and there, but really the journey started in a very early age of 23 when I started Women for Women International.
0: Why did your mom encourage you to read books about women?
1: Um, well, my mom, I think she wanted to pass on what happens to women. My, uh, my grandmother, for example, married at the age of 13 uh, to a man uh, older than her. She was an orphan. And even though my grandfather was a nice guy, he was older than her. And she went through a lot of suffering in terms of being under the control of another household, basically. My grandmother made sure that all of her children, particularly her girls, went to school and finished universities. And that's the story of my mother. There was a change throughout a generation. My mom was a working woman, a college graduate. She was a biology teacher. But then she still struggled between the expectations of a modern woman, you know, working independent, and that she was a wife and a mother. And the expectations of her as a wife and a mother never changed, actually, and never adopted. The other reason is that we were living in war, and particularly with my family, we were very much um, close to Saddam Hussein's environment, and, and that meant we were closer to danger. It did not mean that we were actually protected from danger. And so for a diversity of reasons and all of these reasons, my mom was very passionate that I had to be strong, that I had to be independent. As a teenager, she would hold me and shake me with passion. She says, you must be independent. You must be strong. Never cry. Never let anybody touch you or talk with you in the wrong way. Um, and, and, And she's like, she even told me I should never learn how to cook or clean because no man should expect me to do that just because I was a woman. Is your mom still alive? My mom died, actually, um, at the age of 52. Um, and in the process of her death, um, she gave me another beautiful journey and, and gifts, actually. Uh, she had a uh, Gehrig's disease, um, and I took care of her the last year of her life. In that last year, she told me my story because, you see, I came to America when I was 20 years old through an arranged marriage, and I was very upset that this strong woman, my mother, who told me I have to be independent and I have to fall in love and all of these things or I should choose my husband, all of a sudden begs me for an arranged marriage with a guy I barely knew and older than me, much older than me.
0: Why did she do that? Did you ever learn to understand why she did arrange the marriage ultimately?
1: Ultimately, nine years later, so I was very mad at her, to be honest. But she cried, and and she was like, you have to listen. You you just have to do it. At the end of the day, honestly, I was a daughter who did not want to see her mother cry. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. But when she finally came for uh, medical treatment, and we knew she was dying, that's when I asked her, why, what happened? Why did you do that to me? It was only then that she wrote to me because she could not speak at that time, she lost her voice, that she did that because she was so worried that Saddam Hussein, who again, we were hanging out with him in the weekends and many weekdays as well, um, started to make comments about me as adult woman, as an adult woman. Um, and she She just felt it, and she said, "You know, it. It became. She became the lioness mother. You know, I needed to get my daughter out." It was interesting because I remember these moments, and I just saw him as my father's friend and an uncle, sort of, you know. So I didn't pay attention to these moments. As an adult woman today, I do see what she's, she saw, and I I understand. Mm-hmm. And I, in retrospect, I think she is no different than mothers that, you know, the images of Vietnamese mothers throwing their babies at American soldiers saying, take them. And eventually, in my life, I meet a lot of women who offer me their daughters, like take her. Maybe you'll give her a better life. My mom was doing exactly the same. And was the was the man an American or he was Iraqi American? Um, and he was actually everything my mama told me not to tolerate. Uh, there was a lot of uh, verbal abuse, uh, physical abuse, uh, dependence on him financially, and and it was it was so interesting because it became a very intensive experience of a bad marriage over three months. And good for
0: you that you got out after three months. Other people might stick around, especially wanting to please their
1: mothers. Well, in these three months, Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And I was cut off from my family. I could not even reach them by phone. And I really had to make the decision on my own.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Zainab Salbi, founder of Women for Women International, an organization that provides aid to women in war zones. So you left Iraq in 1990 when you were roughly mm-hmm. 21
1: years old. What did you do professionally or what did you pursue? Well, up until then I wasn't I have never worked in my life in Iraq. If you come from a you know, comfortable financially comfortable family, it's not you don't work at all and it's like socially outrageous. So I find my I left my ex-husband. I had $400 in my pockets. Um, and i my first job was actually at at hallmark uh, mm-hmm. as a clerk you know and I remember being so excited to work. <laughs> and then eventually I went to the limited. I did all the things that, you know, I guess teenagers in here do it. I did it as a 21-year-old. The limited, uh, the clothing company. The clothing company. And then eventually I worked in a medical lab. And, you know, but really for two years I'm really working here and there, just earning a living, you know, a translator, an assistant, uh, all of that. It took me, um, so that's really between the age of twenty, twenty-one to 23, and that's when I decided to start Women for Women. But the point is I had no work much not much work experience at the time.
0: Right. But when you when you got your first job at Hallmark and you mentioned that you were elated because you were working for the first time, uh, was that your state in general, one of kind of zen and happiness having gone through this turmoil? Or what, what was your psychological state at the time?
1: That time was a very hard time. That time, um, not only did I Left an abusive marriage. And, you know, when I mean an abusive marriage, besides the verbal abuse and the dependent, but, you know, I was also raped in that marriage. It was really a bad uh, arrangement. Um, And not only did I not have any money, Mm -hmm. I was cut off from my family. So it all happened at the same time for me. So I remember being glued to the TV stations at that time. Or TV, rather. Um, and just seeing the Gulf War, with the, it was the first time we have a coverage, I think, of a war with all the blue screens, if you remember. Um, and I had no idea where my, where, if my family were alive or dead. I managed to finally call my mom, or she called me, rather, the day before the war, and she gave me her will. Hmm. and she said i don't know if we're going to see you you need to know we have this and this and this and this in the family in case we never see you again so it was a very hard time in my life actually it was um i felt abandoned and alone and 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 cut off from the from my family
0: and how much did your own personal experience of conflict and chaos echo the war that the women you support experience
1: they all in one picture. <laughs> there is no separation, I think. I understand what it means to live in war. Mm-hmm. Now, I lived in a privileged life, nevertheless, so don't take me wrong in here, but the sound of bombs, the fear of... The real f- I mean, the fear of death, you know, um, and I felt that as a teenager, as a child, actually. And then even in the United
0: States, the the fear of being harmed in your own personal life. Right. You seem to to speak so freely about what happened. Uh, have you always been able to speak freely no, about it?
1: I, I was embarrassed for the longest time about it.
0: And then what was the turning point to say, OK, I'm going to open this valve?
1: One of the very women that... I thought I was helping, end up helping me. And this has been really the journey. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to write a book on Iraqi women right after Iraq. And I remember my publisher saying, um, or my agent calling rather, and saying, you really need to write it about yourself without knowing my story. And I cried. I was like, no, it's not about me. It's It's about other women. It's not about me, you know. But that day I was in Congo. And while in Congo, I honestly was, I interviewed Right after that call, a woman called Nabitu. And Nibitu was a 52-year-old woman, homeless, completely poor. She was telling me about how she was raped, gang-raped. Her sons were forced to spread their mother's hands and legs open. Her 9-year-old, 21-year-old, 22-year-old daughters were raped, also gang-raped in front of her. Um, how the rebels not only raped them, but pillaged everything, and they burnt everything. And she said, I never told this story to anybody but you. So I looked at her and said, so I am someone who talks about stories. Would you like me to keep this one secret? And she looks at me, and I never forgot that moment. She says, if I can tell the whole world about my story, I would. So other women would not have to go through what I've gone through. But I can't. You can. You go ahead and tell the story, just not to the neighbors. And I had to drive for five hours from Congo to Rwanda that day. And I promise you, I cried Mm. throughout these whole five hours because I realized in that moment that this woman, humble, illiterate, poor, homeless, you know, lost everything in her life, has far more courage, far more courage than I had. And it was a breaking point in my life. It Mm. was like, I can't actually claim to serve the women if I don't act what I'm asking them to do. And that was the breaking moment.
0: It's interesting, some people might have had an opposite reaction, which is, whoa, I see myself too much in these people that I'm trying to help. I want to run away from it.
1: I, you know, just I feel, uh, because I lived in fear, in dictatorships and close to a dictatorship. I mean, I lived in times in which my family was socialized with Saddam and he would talk about how he killed his best friend the night before. And I would see my parents pale and scared to death. Mm-hmm. So I, that fear is so, was so much in my DNA. So I really had a choice. Generally, any any concept of fear or any trigger of fear, either face it and look at it in the eyes and and take a chance that I can actually overcome it or continue to be imprisoned by it. Mm-hmm. Now, in the process of writing my memoir, by confronting my fear, by showing my nakedness almost, you know, I actually protect myself. It was my freedom. I went, I always joke, as I went through therapy and got paid for it.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Zainab Salbi, founder of Women for Women International. We'll hear more from Zainab coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Zainab Salbi, the founder of Women for Women International, an organization that assists female survivors of war in countries including Rwanda, Kosovo, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Zainab started Women for Women in 1993 with her then husband, Amjad Atala, after she learned about the war in Bosnia. So you decide to start Women for Women International. How did you wake up one day and say, this is
1: what I want to do? Um, so when I finally moved to Washington, D.C., I um, fell in love with a wonderful man, um, and we got married, Amjad Atallah, A Palestinian-American. A Palestinian-American. And we. I went back to school. So I went back to school at George Mason University, and I remember a class that I took, um, that for the first time, I learned about the Holocaust. You know, they didn't teach us that back home. But that same month happens to have on the front page of Times Magazine an image, a picture of a guy behind barbed wires, very, very thin, starved guy, who very much looked very similar images to the one of the Holocaust. So I happen to be one of those people who learn about the two facts in the same month. But people said never again, but it's happening similarly things again, so we have to do something. Anyway, long story short, I was actually at Denny's midnight and talking about how we can help. At Denny's. At Denny's, right. The restaurant. Uh, The restaurant, yes. So I was at Denny's with my former husband, Amjad, and my brother-in-law, and I was like, well, how about if we sponsor women? How about if we just send them letters, manage to exchange letters between women, show them that the world is still a good place, but then give them cash? You, know, you see humanitarian aid give uh, food or secondhand clothes or whatever. No one thinks about giving cash. It, and with that has the dignity and the integrity to go to the store and mm-hmm. buy whatever it is you want. So it was June 1993. September 1993, I went to Croatia with sponsorship funds for 33 women. This is basically the program then and the program now. We ask every woman to send $30 a month to one woman survivor of war and exchange pictures and letters with her if she wish and as she wishes for an entire year. But in September 1993, I took cash with me and names from American women from all different places. And I was like, this is how we're going to launch it, and started with 33 women. Now, this became 300,000 women. How did you get the financing? My uh, former husband and I used our, some of the savings that we had for our honeymoon because we were newlyweds, and we postponed our honeymoon. And then we raised money from you know different crowds, really, from Amnesty International Group, Unitarian Church Group, and that's how we started it.
0: Now, Amjad, you are no, lo- no longer married, but how much of a role did he play in the early days with you?
1: He was um, he was the backbone of it. He was uh, the one who wrote the incorporation papers. He was the one who got all the logistics aspect of it. He also was uh, the one who worked and earned a living, you know, as I run it full time. What was he doing, working? Gosh, I felt, you know, Amjad was actually on a PhD track at the University of Virginia, and, uh, and he decided to drop out and to work really, oh, poor thing. He just... Uh, You know, was a temp and was a whatever different things just so we can earn a living, just so we can do that. So, for three years, um, I wasn't earning any living and just doing this. Um, And we were sending 100% of every penny we raised. So, we were on the brink of like saying, Why we don't know if we can do it. You know, we were like, we were poor kids to start with, and we were giving hundred percent of everything we had and we were really having a hard time survive. So what was the turning point? The turning point was I got a check for sixty seven thousand dollars something like that for working assets. So someone had, ra- had heard me on a radio interview nominating me to working assets as a company that donates 1% of its revenue or a million dollars of its revenue a year. It's a phone company and a credit card company. Mm -hmm. I honestly did not know about that. But the check came for $67,500, I remember. And I remember looking up the sky and said, okay, I think I'm meant to stay. Hmm. And that's when I stayed and hired a couple of staff, and it took us the second wind, basically.
0: This might be too personal for you to answer, but to what extent did uh, the the difficulties of getting women for women off the ground uh, to what extent did did that did that cause your marriage to deteriorate?
1: Not at all. If anything, it was actually one of the best years of uh, that whole period was a wonderful years of our marriage. Now, we went through um, a very hard time financially, but I remember we had no question about our commitment to what we were doing. And just no question about commitment to each other. The marriage actually went uh, deteriorated in far more latter years when everything was growing and it was okay, and you know, and pursuing different dreams. But that, on the opposite, if anything, it strengthened our marriage. Mm. Not, not hurt it at all. So you received this check for sixty-seven, sixty-eight thousand dollars. <laughs> who was the individual who sent it to you? I never knew, but I, until today. I never knew who this was. She was a listener, I think, to a radio. I honestly don't know.
0: By the way, you mentioned, oh, you don't know the woman who recommended you. It could have been a man,
1: right? Oh, it could be a man. Yeah, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, really and honestly, men have been wonderful supporters uh, uh, throughout the, from President Clinton to Mayor Bloomberg, actually, who have been really wonderful supporters to our initiative.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Zainab Salbi, founder of Women for Women International, an organization that assists women who have survived wars in countries including Bosnia, Rwanda, Iraq, and Afghanistan. She's one of 20 leaders chosen by President Clinton to work on the Clinton Global Initiative LEAD program. How do you help people logistically?
1: Well, the development of the whole template of the project came throughout the years you you sponsor a woman for one one year only in that one year she is grouped with 25 other women and with the 25 women she goes through two kinds of training one an educational program that teaches her really about her rights her own value, the value of her, of being her a a woman and the value of her own contributions Um, and teach her about the services that are accessible to her. So it is teaching her from her legal rights to her political rights, go vote, to nutritional health issues, to her her economic values and the different things that she can do for budget management and things like that. So what we call that an educational program that goes along with very basic literacy and numeracy. Now, we also have parallel to that vocational and business skills training. And we teach women skills that has market demands. And that goes from, honestly, from food to service industries to um manufacturing, meaning uh, different things, embroideries and things like that, but much more to sell hats and gloves and whatever it is. We have partnerships with companies like Kate Spade, but also women have their own market locally to carpentry and shoe production and all of these things. So really, we do market assessment and we teach some very, very practical skills. At the end of the year, they graduate, big ceremony. It's beautiful. They get mm. their official certificates. And almost all the women, this is the first time, they get a certificate. And usually they frame it and put it in their living room. And then that's, after that, we help them to place them in jobs, basically, and, and, and uh, or in income-generating opportunities.
0: Could you provide an example of how
1: you've helped a woman? Um, a woman that I recently met in, um, in Afghanistan, and her name is Yakuba. Um, and Yakuba was promised to be married at the age of six, sent to her in-laws at the age of six. The boy she was to marry was nine years old. Now they don't marry immediately. When they get married, when she was fifteen, um, and he gets killed when she was sixteen and a pregnant woman. So at sixteen, she is a widow and a and a, a single mother living in an abusive household with a with his in-laws with her in-laws. Um, Poverty strikes and she ends up going and selling hats in the streets of Afghanistan during the Taliban time. And she talks about how the Taliban one time saw her with a slipper, an open slipper. So her toes were showing and they came and whipped her. Um, But she also talked about how she grabbed that whip the hand and grabbed the whip and threw it. And when I asked her, what, what, what occurred to you? What, what triggered you to do that? And she said, it wasn't the pain of the beating. It was the humiliation of being beaten was more painful. Um, then the Taliban leave and she joins our program with nothing really. She learns embroidery, uh, but she had really particular skills, you know, and so we end up hiring her as a teacher and she took a loan on the side to start a business. Five years later, she has $30,000 in her bank account.
0: We were talking before about a, a pivot point uh, for, for you and for the organization when you received your first big check, but certainly now the organization has provided over $100 million in direct aid and microfinance credit. Were there specific allies financially or on the PR front that helped escalate the organization to a whole other level?
1: Well, there are a couple of pivot points in the organization view. One was the working assets check. The second was a journalist from AP who did an article about two women, one from Michigan and one from Bosnia, and they were exchanging letters. And that got covered front pages in about 13 uh, newspapers in America. That helped really triggered a whole new wave of media attention. And media has always been really the, the most important source for people to know about us and to support us. Then Oprah Winfrey show. Um, Oprah came to us uh, in September 2000. As a matter of fact, I had no idea who Oprah was before. They identified us. They identified me, particularly. They wanted to do a small segment. It was called Remember Your Spirit segment. And I remember going home and watching Oprah. I was like, wow, this is an amazing woman. Um, Ten shows later... Oprah was actually a major turning point in the organization. She featured us 10 times, including the very last show as she was uh, ending her show in 2011. And every time, almost every time she featured us on the show, we get tens of thousands of women joining us.
0: Conrad Hilton being the hotel entrepreneur. To what extent was your mother's voice in your mind while you were launching Women for Women, even
1: day to day? She caught me once being in Sarajevo during the war. She was in Baghdad. And Amjad told her, my former husband. And I remember getting a call in Sarajevo from my mom. She was livid. And she was like, I risked my life. To get you out of Iraq, only for you to go to another war? Are you crazy? I mean, she, I never, I remember like just trying to calm her down (laughs) and feeling I was caught, (laughs) you know, because I didn't tell her. I didn't tell my family for two reasons. A, we only had two minutes of phone calls allowed during Saddam's time in the 90s. So I really had very limited conversations with my family. And B, Saddam was supporting Milosevic in Serbia. So I was afraid of telling them what I did, lest that would put them in danger. So actually, they didn't know the details Mm -hmm. until she came and visited me the year before her death. The details of Women for Women. Of Women for Women International. And I actually remember a couple of weeks only before her death, the Kosovo War started. And I was watching the refugees on TV and the crisis there. And I made a decision that this is my mother and I'm not going to go. Usually I would go. I would be the first to jump on a plane and say, let's go uh, and see how we can set up. But I was like, I'm taking care of my mother and she's dying and I need to stay with her. And I remember her telling me, go. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. I have to stay with you. And she says, go. I will wait for you. And sure enough, I went, set up the program over there. And a week later, she died.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Zainab Salbi, founder of Women for Women International, an organization that provides aid to women in war zones. How is it switching from uh, going from New York City, where you live in Tribeca, to Bosnia or Congo? It must be like a, a mental seesaw. Or are you able to you know, step back and be more zen about that transition?
1: I went through all kinds of sta- all kinds of stages. You know I went from the stage of really being very depressed the first few years. I would feel guilty about buying a dress or even seeing water. then to the stage of anger. I was like, "Bah, oh, people have so much in here, and if you only know, you can save a whole family for the $300 shirt you have." Then to a stage in which I actually, you know what? The world is everything. The world is dark and light. The, work is, the world is rich and poor. The world is beauty and ugliness. It's just, you know, so I have no judgment anymore about it. I just live it and appreciate both sides and hope and just really. And so I know judgment, actually. On the opposite, I actually always urge people to go and enjoy their life. Just share a little. Just Where share some with so, those who don't have. Where do you feel most at home? Uh, honestly, hmm. Wow. You know, I, I call myself the people of of, uh, of the people of the bridge, <laughs> those who do live between two worlds. Every country triggers something in me and there's the food or the smell or whatever that I feel like the home feeling. And I can't deny when I go to Iraq, I'm amazed that country has a ability to grab my heart and just capture it. And there's so much about it that I don't like. It's so hot. It's the environmentally, like the the smell, smell of gasoline is really bad. But I just, it it triggers, it's really have a stronghold on my heart. And I I love it. Um, And I think home is where my bed is. (laughs) And home is when I meditate. And that's sort of what anchors me.
0: You meditate. So, for instance, today, have you meditated yet? Not yet. But I was
1: conscious that I wasn't meditating. (laughs) Mm. So how about yesterday? Yesterday I have, indeed. And how about exercise? I exercise. I feel very strongly about exercise, actually. And again, this all came really in a learning process because I went through the massacre stage, you know, Mm -hmm. of, oh, my God, you know, um, I have so much more than these women, to now... I honestly believe one needs to enjoy their lives. It's about joy and happiness. I love to exercise, I love to dance. I love clothes. You know, I you know I like looking nice. This is not about there is this whole myth as as, as at least when I was young, you know, in the 20s, that if you are to work on social activism that you're supposed to be miserable or or not nice looking or whatever it is and I actually have the opposites. By the
0: way, you know, you you, you meditate, you exercise, um, and this. For, I don't want to sound too simplistic here, but I have thought it would be so helpful for women and men in these regions to be able to get on an exercise bike right. for a half hour and let off that steam and clear their mind. It's 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 underestimated how important that is.
1: I you know I understand it, but it takes such strong will to sort of get out of it's an a courageous will to get out of that imprisonment mental imprisonment and is and because the physical environment is not friendly either you know so is it possible for example for a prisoner to exercise in his or her small cell yes we heard, there are many amazing stories of people you know walking steps in their uh, you know in their solitary confinement or doing yoga or whatever Is it possible? Yes. Does it take an amazing mental will to say, this is how I'm going to defeat it? Yes. Does it happen? People resist in different ways. And this is Mm -hmm. the story that I learned, the lessons I learned. Resistance and heroism is not in the big grandiose ways. People resist in small ways. Honestly, when I go to Congo and these women are dancing fiercely and I just was, they were just telling me the stories about their gang raped and their breasts who got cut out in the process of raping. I mean, like torture and all of that. And then a few seconds later and they dance and that's their resistance. Or running because they they do, we do have run for Congo women and Congolese women run in defiance, basically. You know, a woman whose rebels cut off her legs and she put her artificial leg and run with it just in defiance so people resist Bosnian women during the war I asked them what do you want me to bring next time I come they said lipstick their resistance was in looking beautiful Mm -hmm. at the end of the day what Women for Women International do is providing that space for women in these women's centers we have I call them safe haven for women where they can Maybe not exercise, but move, because we, you know, part of the classes is to have them move or dance or celebrate themselves. And sometimes it's as simple as needing the space mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To, to reaffirm and to re-inspire.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. My guest has been Zainab Salbi, founder of Women for Women International. Coming up, we'll meet Aya Badir, founder of Little Bits. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.